You are listening to PLV Radio Network. Join us in celebrating all of life's possibilities. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, everybody. Welcome back to another edition of Positive Living Vibrations with me, your host, Sarah Troy, and my guest today, Robert Vieira. Everybody's seen the movie American Sniper. If you haven't seen it, you know more or less what it is about. But our tale today is not about a sniper, but somebody that was with him there um, in that world that really nobody really should send any son to. The journey today that we're going to be talking about is actually one of Robert Ferris, of him reading Ryan Jobs and the life impact that it had on him. Now, Robert had already redirected his life, but I don't think he was quite prepared for the redirection that was to come from him, uh, come to him because of Ryan. And we're going to be celebrating Ryan's life today and the impact that it's left on Robert and the people that have been left behind. The story is a warrior's tale, and we're going to be really and utterly and completely embracing this journey because it is an inspiration to everybody. So now let's bring on our guest, Robert. Hello, Robert. Hi, thanks for having me, and I uh, really appreciate your introduction and um, and the way you build it as celebrating Ryan's life, so thank you for that. Well, it was quite an impact for you. I mean, f- you've had a redirect which would have led you to doing what you did and how you met Ryan. And So first, let's actually just let everybody know who Ryan Job is. They might have seen him as Biggles um, on the movie, um, but I think it's best story told coming from you of how you met him and what led up to it. Yeah, Ryan Job was a Navy SEAL. He was uh, born and raised in Issaquah, Washington, which is a suburb just north of Seattle. He um, attended University of Washington for for, uh, two years, left the University of Washington, withdrew from classes, and enlisted in the Navy with the hopes of becoming a Navy SEAL. Uh, In 2002, he entered into BUDS, which is um, Basic Underwater Demolition School, or SEAL training, and uh, completed all three phases of, of BUDS and was assigned to SEAL Team 3, which is an East, uh, West Coast SEAL Team. SEAL Teams are divided into East and West Coast, um, even numbers on the East Coast, odd numbers on the West Coast. So Ryan was assigned to SEAL, T- Seal Team 3, uh, where he joined with um, his platoon mates and Charlie platoon, one of which was Chris Kyle. And Ryan deployed, uh, his first deployment was to um, Iraq, and uh, in 2006, and perhaps the most, I believe, the most contentious time of the Iraq War. Um, by all uh, sort of accounts, um, Ryan had entered the war at the most critical time in the most critical place, which was Ramadi, Iraq. Uh, to illustrate that, uh, I think today, um, Ramadi was the entryway for um, what had been ISIS morphed into I mean, it would have been al-Qaeda in Iraq, which morphed into ISIS, and they entered into Iraq through Ramadi from Syria. So Ryan uh, was with Chris Kyle in their SEAL platoon, Charlie Company, SEAL Team 3, in Iraq, when on August 2nd, 2006, Chris and Ryan were on a rooftop together in the morning. Ryan was facing into the sun east, and Chris was facing west. They were protecting their SEAL team below that was working house-to-house below, um, to, to search for insurgents and search for enemy fighters. Um, a shot rang out. Um, Chris checked himself for holes in blood. He was fine. He called down their SEAL team below, and no one was injured. Then he called over to Ryan, who was unresponsive. 
Chris ran over to Ryan and, and um, knowing that you know Sniper had been out there, and he found Brian with um, you know a fairly egregious wound. His the right side of his face was completely gone. Um, he had been shot by a sniper in the face. The bullet actually hit the top of his receiver or his uh, machine gun, ricocheted off and created a sort of a shrapnel um, missile that tore out his eye, his uh, orbital floor, his cheekbone, everything from the, his upper lip to the to his forehead was just open. He was bleeding out and obviously in peril, convulsing on the roof. That's when Chris found him, called their SEAL team in, and that's how Ryan was wounded. And, you know, you think about it, that bullet ricocheting, you know, if that bullet had gone right into him, that would have been history. You know, there's that kind of fluke of it ricocheting off his gun. It, it blinded him, but in in a sense kind of saved his life. Yeah, but, uh, you know, I had spoken with Ryan about that and then subsequently spoke to a few friends of his who were there with him and Chris as well. And they said that Ryan was saved by, in fact, his discipline of always keeping his head down on his stock of his weapon and keeping his head, you know, on his sight. It's very difficult to get a target or to hit a target when, you know, you're sort of uh, uh, perched like that down in your rifle. So that, that um, obviously, the sniper was was trained. I mean, this was a headshot from, mm-hmm. from perhaps a thousand yards out or more. You know, I, I'll just add one thing. You know, I've heard some commentary about, I, I knew Chris Kyle, by the way, uh, the the, the subject of American Sniper, who wrote the book, and, and Chris dedicated his book to Ryan Joe. And, um, yeah, I've heard some commentary about Chris, <clears throat> media and the like. There were words used that are, frankly, not very complimentary of him, but I just want to tell your audience what Chris said to me. Um, I asked Chris if he was scared about uh, being on the roof when Ryan got shot, because there is a strategy that snipers use, and Chris was a sniper, so he knew it and used it, that um, you would shoot one, wait till, you know, one enemy fighter, wait till help comes, which that's their friends, right? Those are enemies too. And um, then you shoot them all. And Chris knew what happened to Ryan. He knew that enemy sniper was out there. He knew that Ryan had been shot, and he knew that the sniper was waiting for him. I asked Chris if he was scared, and Chris told me that he was terrified, that he knew that he was going to get shot, but he'd be useless to himself and to Ryan and to anyone else if he got himself shot on the other side of the roof. So with that, he stood up, ran to Ryan, defied the sniper, and turned him over. Now, I'll just say for the record, that's not a cowardly act. No. That's somebody who, you know, is scared, who knows, and does it anyway. That's what heroes do. And, um... That's the Chris Kyle that I knew. He didn't. He told me that in a phone call. He didn't have to. I knew Chris since 2009, well before he wrote his book. I mean, there was no bravado. There was no. He, he told me the way he felt, and he did it anyway. He didn't have to embellish anything for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was the Chris Kyle that I knew. Well, you know. So that nonetheless. Too. In media is, and people are always going to be judgmental. And, you know, even though the movie was very popular, it hasn't got all its facts right. In fact, it killed Ryan off um, very quickly in the movie, and, and which I think his, his best living was done afterwards. 
um, and certainly his most impactful that he had on on those around him and even today through your book um, you know when you go to see these movies and these stories it's somebody else's interpretation and before you pass judgment you know truly actually understand where it is coming from and you know it's human nature to kind of I don't know criticize or or judge people but you know he saved many many lives out there and asking a man to do that he has to take a life in order to save lives um it changes a person but also i think it's it's a very hard thing to do and i think before people go throwing stones they should ask could they um so we can leave that at that but but it's uh you know it's you know just pinch of salt with everything and if you haven't seen it if you weren't there and if you haven't heard it from the horse's mouth it's somebody else's interpretation which means it can get misdrewed so you know that's that's that all right so you know i know i just want to finish one point is that um ryan was on the roof he was shot the seal team his seal team came up and literally saved his life um the medic was working on ryan while the enemy was out there uh, another one of ryan's seal teammates a young man named mark lee um stood in the exact spot where ryan was shot and provided cover fire after ryan was shot Ryan, that that sniper shot was a signal for the battle to start, and um, there are bullets now flying at the roof from all directions. Um, so they were targeting the SEAL team on the roof. They were targeting the SEAL team below. Um, there was a, a fairly intense firefight that ensued. Ramadi at that time in 2006 was far too dangerous to fly helicopters in, especially during the day. So there was no chance of um, air medevac out. Um, there, uh, the Army happened to be working in conjunction with Ryan's SEAL team. There was a task force assigned to retake Ramadi, and that task force was um, codenamed Bruiser. Um, the 1st Armored Division had their Bradleys and Abrams in the area, and um, they heard uh, um, what had happened and raced to the scene to um, evacuate Ryan. Uh, while Ryan's team worked on him, his lieutenant held his hand and you know, literally called him back to this world, just saying, you know, hey, brother, we're going to get you out of here. Don't worry about this, brother. We're going to get you out. Come on, Ryan. Come on. And miraculously, Ryan woke up and sat up. And um, I think they were all pretty shocked because the medic told me that um, he had to tell the lieutenant who was holding his hand, Ryan's hand, sir, please let go. We have to get out of here. Um, so lieutenant let go of Ryan's hand, helped him, Ryan up to his feet. Chris Kyle then tried to evacuate Ryan off the roof by carrying him. Ryan asked to be put down. And um, Ryan scrambled to find his weapon. He, he was, you know, he couldn't see and he was, he didn't want to leave his weapon behind. And um, he evacuated himself off the roof. He didn't want, he knew that his team needed every gun in the fight to get everybody out. And uh, evacuated himself off the roof to an awaiting Bradley. And that track took them to a, um, to first the medical aid station, and then um, to what was the only hospital in, you know, basically that part of Iraq, um, not, you know, for, that potentially could have saved Ryan's life, was Charlie Medical at, um, at uh, Camp Ramadi. I just want to speak about that for a moment, because this was really uh, an unusual place to have physicians working. Um, Ramadi really did, the whole city was a front. There were really no safe spots in Ramadi. Um, you know, there was porous sort of entryways and 
you know, the bases were constantly targeted by mortar attacks. So there really wasn't at that time, you know, in the spring summer of, of 2006, not very secure places in Ramadi at all. Um, and a group of physicians, uh, Army and Navy physicians, um, and medical team had volunteered to go into Ramadi to set up a operating facility, a medical facility with surgeons, literally within the front line. If they weren't there, Ryan, there's no question in my mind that Ryan would have died. Yeah. Um, they risked their lives to to provide aid not only to our you know service members but to civilians and wounded enemy. Um, so Ryan arrived at Charlie Medical. He evacuated himself off the um, <clears throat> off the track, refused a stretcher, walked in, sat down upright on a on a table, and they, you know cut his webbing off, cut his gear off, and he told he told them that he'd had worse pain and he was all right and uh, he wanted to go back. And I spoke to the physician. Um, it was an incredible you know surgeon. I mean this this person is. He was a top gun pilot. He decided that he wanted to go to medical school, so he traded in his wings and went to medical school and became a surgeon. I mean, that's the quality of people that we have in the United States military, that this person, you know, decided that he needed to do more than mm-hmm. be a pilot, so he went to medical school. Literally, um, you know, they brought Ryan in, sedated him, cut off all the bleeding, saved his life, and evacuated him that night. They actually brought a helicopter in that night into Camp Ramadi, evacuated him to Balad, and one day later, Ryan was on his way to um, Germany for advanced medical care. He uh, subsequently lost his right eye and was rendered totally blind by the wound. And, you know, in, you kind of have to think, what is the adrenaline going in? in you know, you see this. I mean, there was there was a story in, um, um, was it the, uh, no, Ryan, Saving Private Ryan, uh, the horrific first 20 minutes of the movie of, of a beach scene where all the soldiers have just been sh- you know mowed down and the camera goes in on this one soldier and, and he looks confused and you think, well, get down, mate, there's, there's bullets coming at you. And then you see him looking down for his arm that's been shot off. And, you know, they're in such a state of kind of, I don't know, is it shock? And is it like they're just not in that kind of reality? They haven't, you know, they're not aware. They haven't, the pain hasn't kicked in yet. Because you do hear this, don't you, of people who shouldn't be alive or who should be screaming and shouting are kind of wandering around and saying they're okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure there was, uh, I know Ryan was in extreme pain. Um, he told me that in his, um, his medic. You know, I'll just tell you really quickly, his medic brought him there and left him on the track and then just stood there and watched. And his medic is a, um, I call him Tommy in the book. His medic went through buds with Ryan. They had met, you know, in buds that had been seals together their whole career. I mean, um, and now he had, you know, basically watched his friend, you know, he did, he told me there was no way that he thought Ryan would live. Mm-hmm. When he was working on him on the uh, roof, he thought Ryan was dead. And, um, you know, Ryan came back to life. He said that he was, you know, the exposed nerves and the jolting in the, in the track, you know, the, the medic told me that, that Ryan must have been in just extreme pain and he was still lucid and having a conversation. Yeah. And the medic had no idea how that was happening. Yeah. Nonetheless, he, he dropped Ryan off at the, you know, at the base and just stood there and watched. And he told me that was the moment that he decided that he needed to do something more with his life. Mm-hmm. And uh, he went back to finish his undergraduate. When I caught up to him last, it was actually at Chris Kyle's funeral. And he told me that um, 
he was uh, in his, uh, finishing up his first year and going into his second year at Harvard Medical School. He was inspired by Ryan Job to do that. I mean, this is the thing, uh, you know. I'd love to have seen the story of Ryan Job and you know and Chris Kyle on on the um, you know the survival rather than you know on on the sniper journey. Um, you know, he's touched um, that guy's life to change his direction. Um, he certainly has changed your life quite considerably. And anybody that hears his story, you know, he leaves a mark. And, you know, when you look at it, um, the hero isn't necessarily in the, you know, in the act of war. I think very much in the hero is how you choose to live afterwards. And he certainly chose to live life um, to its fullest, didn't he? Yeah, I mean, you make a good point. I, I really thought about that word hero for a long time, you know, after Ryan died, because I think it's been <clears throat> thrown around a lot, frankly. And um, I really needed to apply my own definition to it, cause I, so I would know just, you know, who was and who wasn't in my own way. I think a hero is, is somebody, and what we admire about all our heroes is really three things, is that we, you know, heroes act greater than their past. Mm-hmm. They're not a victim. Yeah. their past. They don't allow their past to define who they are. Heroes act greater than their environment. They're not a product of their own environment. And how many people do we know today just sort of, you know, the outside world controls the inside of them. Yes. Right? They're having a bad day because something happened in the outside world. Right? They can't overcome that. And then lastly, heroes act greater than the way that they feel. I mean, Ryan Job, I know, is in a lot of pain. Yet he told them, hey, just send me back out there. I don't want to leave my guys. Chris Kyle, I knew, was terrified. He told me that in his own words. Mm-hmm. And he went anyway. And I think that's what heroes do. Yeah. Like, courage is not the lack of fear. Courage is going forward with fear. Yes. And um, so I think that that's why <clears throat> Ryan's life after he was wounded was, to me, heroic. I mean, he chose to be totally, he was totally blind. He could do nothing about it. But, you know, he never bemoaned the fact. In fact, my uh, when I finished the manuscript, I sent it to my editor, and she said, look, you know, this sounds very strange, but, you know, I need to ask you, did Ryan ever bemoan the fact he was blind? seems like he really didn't have any bad days, or I'm not sure exactly how she phrased it. But I said, you know, let me think about it, and I'll call you back. So I did a couple of days later, and I said, I have to tell you something. Not only did Ryan never complain to me, and I'm sure he had some very, very hard days, but not only did he not complain to me, he once told me that he was grateful that he was the one that was shot. He was grateful that he was the one that was blinded, that he was grateful for all the people and all the opportunities that came to him, even though he was blind. I mean, that to me, when I thought about it, is that, that's heroic. Yes. You know, to, to accept that condition with such grace and dignity and um, and just feeling grateful for, for that. Um, that. That was something that I thought was really just remarkable about you know, who he was and says so much more about, about him uh, than I think anybody could, you know, he, you know, he's told me that in private. It wasn't like I, you know, a big public conversation about this. He, he just said to me in private that, you know, I, I, I you know, I, while I wish things went differently, like, I don't, you know, I'm not at all, you know, um, you know, regretful. He'd been given I, I, another chance at life and it's like, okay, it wasn't, you know, the same life that he had before. So he had to redefine what his life was. But in that gratitude, he seeked to live life, you know, fully and completely. Yeah, I think that's what attracted, you know, many people to him, including me. I mean, you know, it's it's funny that, um, really ironic in a way, and uncanny that his last name is Job. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Job, the only other Job I knew was the Job in the Bible. 
you know, I, I thought about that a lot because in the Bible, you know, the story goes is that the devil is looking to challenge um, somebody, and he says to God, that, you know, they'll acquiesce, you know, they'll they'll curse you, and 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 then God speaks what I think are the most dangerous words ever spoken or written in the Bible. He says to the devil, well, you know, take my servant Job. <laughs> I mean, if that's not like, you know, go ahead and test him, right? If that's not the most dangerous words, right? God's offering you up to the devil to test, right? Yeah. And Ryan's life was uncanny in the sense that he was tested like Job. I mean, he was at the top of his career and brought down and then made blind, and he was afflicted with so many conditions that, and he was just grateful, and he never lost faith. Never. Not once did he, you know, bemoan or, you know, was ungrateful, and that's, I mean, it was Job-like, ironically. A and laugh um, in the face of the devil. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just, you know, literally just like laughed at the devil, you know, yeah. is that all you got, right? Yes. Blindness, or, I mean, and, and, and I'll tell you, just, just to be really clear about that, Ryan Job was totally blind. I mean, he wasn't visually impaired. He was missing his right arm, eye and totally blind in his other one. He told me once, the only time he saw after he was blinded is when he walked into a low-hanging branch by mistake and he saw stars. <laughs> that was it. Um, now, totally blind, I, Ryan climbed to the summit of Mount Rainier. If that's not laughing in the face of the devil, I don't yeah. know. And, and I remember reading the description of Ryan. We trained together for it. Um, I said, Ryan, you know, it's 4,411 feet tall. It's the tallest mountain in your home state of, of, um, of Washington. It's the most glacially covered peak in the lower 48. Three people perish each year trying to get to the top. And 50% of the able-bodied people who attempt to climb Mount Rainier don't make it. And Ryan kind of grinned and laughed and said, yeah, but I'm, I'm going to be in the other 50%. Sure enough, in July of 2008, Ryan, Ryan Job, less than two years after he was wounded on rooftops, summited Mount Rainier. Yeah. I mean, just an incredible feat. I, I look, I don't want to sound, but I've I climbed Rainier several times, and um, it, it's extremely challenging. And I tried at one point, my second time, I think, on the summit or near the summit, I tried to, cl- I, I tried to climb with my eyes closed, and... You know, it, it just, I took about four steps and had it over my eyes. It was just way too unnerving to do that. You know, the other thing that Ryan did, which was, which I thought was incredible, is, is I'll tell you quickly, like, you called me up one day and said, hey, can you get me out of the airport? I said, sure. So I said, I go pick him up. And um, I, I didn't think to ask him, because I would take him to the airport all the time. It wasn't other, you know, we were just really good friends. I mean, he lived down the street from me. And so... I just forgot to ask him. I said, you know, where are you going, by the way? And he says, you know, kind of grinned and said, elk hunting. And um, so I just laughed. And Ryan had this way of sort of just saying something and then just shutting up and waiting for a reaction, you know. So I said, you know, you um, you have to see them to hunt them, right? And he just smiled and said, yeah, yeah, I know. Don't worry about that. I said, you know, you, you may not want to tell the other hunters that you're blind. <laughs> you know how those guys are, right? Point you blind, pointing a gun at you. He's like, don't worry about that. How do you like your elk? Burgers or chops? So you can spread me, right? And um, two days later, he texted me a picture of a 980-pound elk that he melted with one shot. I mean, I mean, I, I look, I have the photos to, to show you. I mean, it's a written yeah. up. I mean, it's 
so it's just an amazing. He was amazing in what he what he set out to accomplish and what he did accomplish. I mean, he graduated from college, you know, with a four point totally blind. Never never made any you know never made a big deal out of it. Just sort of went to school. He was working full time as an intern for General Dynamics, a paid intern, going to school, training. He was also Ryan, um, the, the veteran community embraced Ryan as somebody as a leader. And he would do often do speaking engagements at veterans events and at corporations. Um, and, and Ryan was, he was also a spokesperson for an organization called Camp Patriot, which I'd like to tell you a little bit about if I could. Yes, Camp please. Patriot was the organization who, um, who uh, took Ryan to the, they organized a climb on Mount Rainier, um, and many other uh, groups that they brought on Rainier, um, as well as Ryan's Elcock. Um, and what Camp Patriot does is, is really important, I believe, in that um, it provides outdoor recreational opportunities for, for wounded and disabled veterans of all generations. And it does that so that it can build a relationship first. And that that's important, and I'll tell you why. We, we've all heard this statistic of um, 22 veterans a day killing themselves through suicide. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you really drill down into the antecedents of suicide, it is it is a condition of hopelessness. And, uh, you know, as far as I know, there is no pharmacological solution to hopelessness. And that's yet the VA solution to it. And, you know, as the problem gets worse, they they put more money um, to find a, a, a solution, which is chiefly a pharmacological one. And it occurred to me that hopelessness is uh, quelled and perhaps even cured by the right relationships in your life. Because um, it is those relationships that provide hope and opportunity. So Camp Patriot's mission is really to provide those those recreational um, activities with the um, understanding that these will create um, new right relationships with, with people. You know, it's, it's very, and, and the reason why I, I know this is because on my last climb of Mount Rainier, I, I was a volunteer guide. I, I've climbed before and I just went and volunteered to Camp Patriot to guide. And those of you who have, who have mountain climbed, you know that you, you are on a rope team. You have a harness and a rope, and you're attached to the person in front of you. And if there's someone in front of you, you're in the lead. And if there, and you're attached to the person behind you. I mean, you're attached by a rope. It's very difficult not to have a trusted relationship yeah. with somebody you're tied to. And I remember we're going over a, a part of the of the climb called Disappointment Cleaver. It is perhaps the most challenging part of the climb. A cleaver is a rocky outcropping that separates two glaciers. It's steep, it's icy, it's slick, and um, as we approached the summit of, uh, or the top of Disappointment Cleaver, I, I turned to the person in back of me who had one leg, and um, and I said to him, hey, you know, and he was a wounded veteran, he had come back, and um, I said to him, hey, you know, we're going to get to the most difficult part, and frankly, the most dangerous part, and, um, you know, there's really no way to say this, but we got three options here. None of them are real good. I just want to give them to you. If you fall, right, and take us all down with you, if you go straight down, we're going to bounce all the way down this cleaver, 
you know, and we're, we're going to end up knocking everybody else down, probably take them all with us. We're going to end up at the bottom in a big pile and not in good condition. And if we fall to the right, it's about nah, 1,500 feet before we hit something. And if we fall to the left, it's about 2,000 feet before we hit something, which is definitely going to be a hard glacier. And either way, we're probably not going to survive. So if you're planning on falling, you may want to fall to the left. It's 2,000 feet, and we'll live slightly longer. <laughs> and he just thought that was funny. And that's when I knew that we had a relationship, you know, that, that now that we can go on this thing. And, and since that day, you know, we, we still talk, we still are friends. I mean, it's um, because that's a trusted relationship that Camp Patriot built. So Ryan um, was part of that organization, Camp Patriot. He became the spokesperson for Camp Patriot. And really, that's what Camp Patriot does. It empowers um, wooden disabled veterans through outdoor relationships with the hopes of building the right relationships in their lives. So nonetheless, that that was Ryan's life. He he literally came back and and he just he just picked up where he left off. He, you know, he was in school working full time, um, you know, enjoying life. He was married when I met him. He was married. I, I actually met him in the summer of 2008 through a mutual friend, and um, we we became you know friends and spent pretty much you know not maybe not every day but every other day training together. Um, and you know, remained I remained friends with Ryan until. Literally, the day he died. And, of course, the impact that he's had on your life has been quite, you know, enormous. Uh, um, I mean, let's just have a quick look background, Joe, on your story. Um, You know, you came from a totally different world before. You know, you were in banking industry. um, And you actually decided to leave that and took a leap of faith to follow your own dream to become an entrepreneur. And, you know, if you look at the synchronicity of life, had you not done that, um, you wouldn't be helping, you know, anybody climbing Mount Rainier. And then you met him to help him do that. Um, you were so inspired by his life um, and, you know, short life, but impactful life that you decided to write a book that now in turn is inspiring other people to not just look at um, our war heroes or our veterans, but to look at ourselves and the obstacles that we have in our way because of the way life has dealt that hand and that we too can find joy and gratitude and uh, and substance and purpose in life. It's just... Um, it's just a different dance. So that domino effect of his life and the fact that you changed your life um, is quite fascinating the way it all comes together, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you know, just as a way of background, and you know, not to give too much, but, you know, I started out, I was, I, I'm from Massachusetts, so I, I moved to Arizona in 2000 to, to um, pursue a master's degree. I had been, I had um, started, I was a political science major. I worked for the United States Senator. I had left uh, politics and went into banking. Um, and spent pretty much my entire career in leadership, banking leadership positions, until one day, I had been an athlete in college, I played football in college, and I'd been an athlete, always been sort of interested in sort of athletics, and and um, I, during my banking career, I started to do these, um, you may have seen them on TV, they're, they're Ironman triathlons, mm-hmm. they're swimming, biking, and run. So I really enjoyed the process of training, it's, it's a longer, you know, it's 140.6 miles over the course of uh, a swim and a bike and a run. You know, it's a 2.4-mile swim, a 120-mile bike ride, and a marathon at the end. So training for one is really, you know, it's physically, spiritually, and emotionally transformational. You know, it's just, it really is sort of this, I really enjoy the process, much more so than I liked my real job as a banker. Mm-hmm. So one day, I just decided, you know, I, I, I don't know how I came to this. Um, I just decided that I, I needed to be more significant in people's lives. 
I'm not sure that even makes sense. Well, I don't even know what that meant, really, but I just knew that that was it. It was so vague, but so clear that mm. this was wrong and that was right, that I had to do something different. So I just decided that, you know, maybe this is it, and I, I, I you know, I can't, you know, I can't wait. I have to do it now. I became really anxious and just literally came home one day and said, to my wife, look, I got good news and bad news. I set up a company to distill down, you know, the elements of training for an Ironman into more of a consumer program for businesses and individuals. And that's the good news. And the bad news is I just took a hundred percent pay cut. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, I had two little kids and, you know, I joke in the book that, you know, they had bad habits that they like to eat every day, you know, <laughs> yes. but, uh, so, you know, I've got this sort of new company, new career, totally fish out of water, you know, just, just total entrepreneurial. And, this, you know, I'm, I'm trying to change people's lives, right, to transform them. And this guy, Ryan Joke, shows up in my mm-hmm. life literally out of nowhere. Yeah. Got a call from a friend I haven't seen in 20 years. Says he just got home from Iraq. He was in the Navy. And he introduced, you know, well, anyway, end up meeting Ryan Joke. But it was, I mean, uncanny. So, I, look, I'm... That that was for me the sign. I mean, I, and I'll tell you that during that period, I was really struggling because you know I had left my career to something totally new. Um, you know, I'm questioning whether this is the right path, and you know, I, I don't think those uh, that question wasn't a new one. In fact, I think that you know, I had my most common prayer to God at the time was, you know, please just give me a sign. I think everybody has that prayer. I think I'm not the only one. I think that everyone has this, you know, something so unmistakable, you know, because I'm an idiot. Something so unmistakable that I cannot confuse it with anything else but a sign from God, from you, that this is the right path and I need to keep going. So one day, I'm with Ryan Job, who, by the way, comes out of nowhere into my life. Literally nowhere. Um, I'm hiking with him in the desert in the morning before sunrise because it's hot here in Arizona and you have to go up before sunrise. So he's blind. I'm hiking with him. We go to the top of this one mountain. We come back down. We go up again. We come back down. We pass everybody on this hill. And it's crowded because it's the summer. It's before sunrise, and that's how people work out here. And um, we're coming down now. The sun's up. And people must have been curious why I had my hand on his shoulder directing him up the hill, because that's how we trained together. And uh, now they could see that he was blind. Right. And that um, and that we're coming down this hill together. And they knew that we were the ones that passed them not once but twice on this hill. Some blind guy and this other guy behind him, you know, telling them where to go. And all of a sudden, just out of the blue, you know, they just clear a path for us. You know, come off the trail and clear a path for us. Just stand aside. And they're feet away from us and they're clapping. Just clapping. Yeah. You know, just. And uh, Ryan has no idea what people are doing, right? It must have <laughs> been so weird to him to hear people to his left and right, like just clapping, you know? And uh, I can't tell him what it is because I'm choked up. Yeah. And uh, I don't want him to know it. So I just, you know, you know, it's a mile down the hill. And the whole way, people are asking, because at the bottom, they don't know. So people are asking, and the other people in front are telling them. So the words getting passed before us down the hill. And um, so it finally occurs to me, 
that I'm asking God for a sign all these years, and here I am in the middle of the desert at dawn, and I got this guy named Job <laughs> in front of me, leading me down this mountain, not by his sight, but by his faith. And I'm asking God for yeah. a sign. Yeah. It just seems so ridiculous to me. I was like, oh, if this is not it, I mean, if this is yeah. not so unmistakable, I, I just don't know what is. I mean, clearly, he's probably tried to get signs to me in the past, and I just didn't. You know what I mean? It was just yep. like, so he needed to arrange the universe in a way that even an idiot like me could figure it out. And um, he did. And that was my sign, like, okay, keep going, have faith. And, um, you know, Ryan Job was the guy who brought that to me. I mean, that was, uh, and that was you know, I later impact, told him. That was it for me. That was, I mean, you know, and I think that that, that for me was, it was probably one of the most profound. I mean, at that point, there's a, there's a philosopher called Jung, and, he's, and he, he said something that really resonated with me at that moment he, about God. He said, I don't believe in God. I know. And I understand exactly what he meant. Yeah. Faith is always something that we have to question, isn't it? I mean, it really isn't um, a case of religion. Faith is something that is, it simply is. It's something you believe in. It's something that guides you. It's something that uh, leads you to your knowingness. Uh, you trust the soul intellect. It resonates with the heart. It um, acts in your action. And your mind knows what it needs to know then at the time it needs to know it. And that is true faith. It's just knowing what is without having to have any definition or understanding. And he clearly was a person that lived in that faith. He lived in that understanding of what is. He knew he'd been given a second chance at life. And he knew that every moment was going to be a gift. And that he was just simply going to live in his now and appreciate all the moments of his now. Because he also knew who knew what was going to be tomorrow. And that's, I think, one of the great gifts that he gives us, is believing in today and into our, in our possibilities and what we can do today and do it in belief that you can and in gratitude that you did. Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the gifts that Ryan gave me, one of the lessons that um, I talk about in the book is that you know, it's frankly all borrowed time. Mm -hmm. We're not promised tomorrow. I mean, it's all borrowed time, so get after it. And, you know, I think that, right, there's, there's a great definition of faith, and it um, comes from the book of Hebrews, and it's Hebrews 11, 1, that says, faith is being sure uh, of what you hope for and certain of what you cannot see. And I thought Ryan embodied that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean... But it was just ironic that he embodied it. I mean, but, yeah, that, that faith, I mean, my, I think faith is always, at first, I think, uh, you know, it's a dialogue with doubt yeah. before it becomes a conversation with with God. And then certainly for me, that's what my faith was. I mean, just, you know, I think it's I think it's healthy and normal to do that, to, to you know, I think that, um, you know, one of my favorite authors is... Um, C.S. Lewis, and you, you listeners may know him, The mm -hmm. Wardrobe of the Witch and The, yeah. uh, the Lion of the Witch and the Wardrobe. But C.S. Lewis, I think, says that I'm, I'm more or less a C.S. Lewis type, I guess, Christian in a sense. Is that C.S. Lewis said that he came kicking and screaming to Christianity. <laughs> <laughs> and 
that came through, I think, a dialogue with doubt. And, um, you know, and I think C.S. Lewis and I probably had the same conversations with God and the same request and the same, you know, ask for a sign request and prayer. And, you know, it was that intellectual pursuit. And I think it was that experience that through the experience and the intellectual pursuit that, that, you know, that really brought me to a deeper faith. And that faith was served to me through a guy named Ryan Job and um, through his faith. And I think that, you know, Ryan Job really does something which I hope I can continue is that, you know, epidemics, you know, can go in, in both directions, right? So we know that there could be an epidemic. We've heard things like an epidemic of, of obesity. Well, if it makes sense, if it can go in one direction, then it should make sense if it can go in the other direction, right? So I think Ryan Job represented an, an epidemic of hope. Yeah. You know, he, he was, um, in the lives that he touched, he gave hope to those lives. And that's what I wanted to write about in the book. <clears throat> and I would like to continue also in a humble way, you know, to be an epidemic of hope for people, you know, through my experience and through my friendship with Ryan and to be able to write about that, you know, to show that Ryan Job, um, in his life and even in his death, um, he, um, was, he lived, you know, I, I think an incredible life. I mean, I, one of my favorite poets is Mary Oliver and she asked really the most profound question I think anyone could ever ask anyone else is, what do you plan to do with this one wild precious life and Ryan Job answered that you know he, he did it in, in such you know a, a profound way with an exclamation point I mean he'd be a you know a Navy SEAL a hunter you know a pilot a father you know a, a loyal friend a loving husband you know he answered Mary Oliver's poem I mean with with his life yeah. And it was just beautiful how he lived his life. And he never took me or anybody for granted. And, you know, he he had a, a great sense of humor. I'd have to pull over the car laughing, you know, because he'd have us both in hysterics just laughing, you know. And, um, I mean, he's just really uh, one of the most incredible people I've ever had the opportunity to meet. I mean, he's just really just a great guy and, and a lot of fun to be with all the time. I mean, it was never a moment that I never took our friendship for granted or our time together for granted. We, we trained hard together. We, you know, he was intellectually very curious. Um, he knew I worked in politics at a very high level and he wanted to know all about that. Um, he knew I worked in banking, um, you know, and, and was a, my last stop from a, sort of banking soon chain was um, I was a, a, a vice president of one of those too big to fail banks you hear so much about <laughs> and he wanted to know all about that experience he was he's so curious about um, those um, you know that career those endeavors and he was just more he was much more um, interested in other people and um and their well-being than he was himself. He was really engaging in that way, and he asked a lot of questions of people, and and um, he just made himself so available to, to people. There was just really, he was somebody that you just couldn't help but, but like the moment you met him. I mean, you see, you know, a lot of veterans uh, today, or even people have been in accidents, uh, you know, they've lost a limb, or, you know, they've 
they've been blinded. But, you know, how many times have we actually seen on celebrity dancing, you know, people without limbs? There's a, a guy there right now, I'm afraid I don't know his name, but um, he's minus one arm and one leg and he's out there dancing, you know, with the, you know, celebrity dancing. And it's just to prove that, uh, you know, you may have to adjust the way you're going to do things. And there may be some things that you can't do, but you find out what you can do. And that's where you shed the light on, isn't it? Shed the light on, on what you can do. Because you're just going to do it so much better if you believe you can. Stop worrying about yesterday. It's today. What can you do today? And in just doing it, what will you discover that you can do tomorrow? Yeah, I think the, the person you speak about is Noah Galloway. And, um, you know, I think that he he, he struggled. I mean, he is, he's admitted to that, that he struggled with drugs and alcohol to get back, you know, to... Because he was, um, you know, wallowing about what he couldn't do. When mm-hmm. he started to focus on what he could do, he became, I think, a hero to us all. And um, a guy who is, uh, you know, probably better than he ever was. Um, certainly an inspiration to, to people who watch the show and people who are not even fans of dancing to yeah. see what he can do. But, I mean, I think that that's really the message is that, you know, in, in the book and of Ryan's life and people like know it's like... Um, you know, it really focus on what you can do and to be grateful. And I think that that's, you know, those the three elements of what I think a hero is. I think Noah defines that not being a victim of his past, not allowing his environment or his you know external conditions to control the in, inside of him, and you know, and acting greater than the way that he felt feels. And that's really I think that if if more people could do that, we'd have a much better world. Um, you know, I think that many people fancy themselves a victim, you know what I mean? They've been victimized by some something, and, um, you know, I, I, and they and they prefer just to stay in that state of victimization, which is really draining, not only to them, mm-hmm. but the people around them. Exactly. And um, also, I think that leads to depression, and really what a depression, if you, you know, if you can distill it down, is that, you know, depression is in, you know, and I'm not belittling it at all, and I'm not sort of suggesting that it's not a condition that needs to be, um, you know, taken seriously. But I think that um, there's an inward focus that's that's um, um, perhaps disproportionate um, with depression. Because I find it myself, just personally, I, I you know, I, I seldom ever have bad or low days or depressed days because I'm always sort of got somebody else on my mind. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I'm all, I've got a group trip to the Grand Canyon and I'm worried about more concerned about them I've, I've got kids and a wife and I'm, I'm, I'm just I don't need that much if you know what I mean I, I don't I, I'm not that I'm okay like and I'm grateful for everything and I just find it like I just find it hard to feel um, any type of self-pity or and that's not depression but any type of you know cloudy gray skies over me when I have so many other people that I want to help and that now kind of depend on me being able to help, you know, and, and, you know, I'm part of their team and they're part of my team. And I just feel like, um, it would let them down, um, and me down if, if for some reason I said, well, I'm feeling kind of gloomy. I can't do this. I mean, and so I just find it very difficult for me personally to feel, I, I I love having those opportunities and those people in my life. I love being able to serve and just you know I call it being a small cog in the big machine. You know I I love I love that role and um, 
and I think that that's what has, I think, um, for me at least, um, been, you know, because I've gone through some really rough times, but I think that's been important for me to, um, to, to feel that way. Yeah. Yeah. I it mean, becomes, to, it to becomes your learning tool. And, and, you know, and depression comes about from so many ways. I, I suffer sometimes from clinical depression. Uh, it's got nothing to do with intellect or with caring or being purpose. Um, it is just something that uh, chemical imbalance in me sometimes, and it causes this, you know, debilitating um anxiety over me and actually how my first radio um, show ever came about was through depression um i knew that i had to be proactive so i was on linkedin i was on facebook people were posting you know woe is me and i'll get in there in my counseling mode and and give counsel and uh because that was me being proactive if i didn't do that i would sink and somebody noticed that and she said you know looking at what you do you need to have your own show and you know i've just entered my fourth year now and with my own station now and it's it came out of that and it's because I chose not to give in to it. And I know how easy it is to give in to it because it's got nothing to do with intelligence. It's all to do with the way the chemistry is working in your body. And, you know, thank goodness that I decided to be proactive because it's led to where I am today, interviewing people like yourself and other people. I've done a show on veterans who, and I know this is close to your heart, who kind of being left behind because of the medical system. And especially when it comes to things like depression or anxiety or transition of where they've been and to where who they need to be today, um, there isn't a great deal of help. A few organizations, but from the government and certainly from the medical thing, there isn't enough being done. I found a product um, which is helping veterans and helped me called Q96, and it's a nutrient, and it just feeds uh, the brain, the nutrients it needs in order to be able to cope with things. And it helps them then um, be able to take stock of their own lives and start moving forward to where they want to go. But medically uh, and emotionally medically, we are not helping our veterans get their lives back because of the long waiting list and just of the whole approach towards it. And I know this is something that's close to your heart. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad you brought that up. And, and um, thank you for sharing you know, your experience, too. I think it's important that uh, the right relationships in your life, you know, helps you, you know, overcome some of those issues. But, um, you know, as it relates to here in the United States, and I know that um, we have listeners in Canada and other places, but here in the United States, we, we just went through this gymnastics of having, you know, it's now termed Obamacare, which was, um, it first started out, frankly, as a discussion about the broken healthcare system. I don't think there's any American that would have not agreed that the healthcare system was broken. But I think we defined that, at least initially, as a system that we're paying a lot into that wasn't getting, we weren't getting the right results or efficacy based on, you know, the, the monies we're spending. And that there are other um, nations that were getting better results, um, you know, based on their spending per capita. So it went from that to, to a discussion as to how do we give everybody healthcare. Now, we do have Obamacare, which covers pre-existing conditions, and it's, you know, allegedly health care for all, except for my veterans, because um, they're subject to a, a I guess, a, sub, a sub-tier system or another system, um, which is the VA. So, um, you know, my question is that, you know, do we really need to have, you know, these overlapping systems of medical care? Aren't veterans Americans? And wasn't Obamacare there for all Americans? Mm-hmm regardless of pre-existing conditions. So, I mean, the, the real challenge and the, perhaps 
the way to frame this question is, is that are veterans really included in all Americans? And if so, then why can't they just go and go to any medical facility? Because the problem with the VA is we have 22 veterans a day committing suicide. So that leads to the question as, okay, either they're not accessing the VA to get treatment, or perhaps even worse, maybe, that they are getting treatment and it's not working. The, the, the problem I see it is this, is that I, I, I believe that the VA is doing the best job that they can. And that's the problem. Yeah, They're doing the best job that they can, and we have 22 a day. So, look, I mean, I don't want to say this in a crass, or, crass way, but I'm underwhelmed. And I do think that veterans are veterans. My veterans deserve better than that. They deserve the same health care that, you know, they swore an oath to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States. That's the same oath that every congressman and senator took. Why can't my veterans get the same health care as my congressman or my senator? Yeah. So those are the questions I think that um, need to be asked in an intelligent way, have a intelligent discussion right away about um, I just don't think that we need an overlapping system in the VA anymore. You know, we we have, um, you know, different types of insurances for different groups. Here. We have Medicare and Medicaid. Well, they can go to any physician. Why can't my veterans go to any physician? Yeah. So hopefully we will have a more intelligent dialogue about this. Um, and we will be able to, um, uh, to work with our veterans in a way that helps them overcome some of the challenges. But I do think there are people... Look, in the end, I think it is um, an epidemic of hope that started by, you know, a friend of mine like you know, Ryan Joe. But I'll just tell you about another friend of mine. His name is Mike Day. He's a Navy SEAL. And um, I, I've said his name before because he's put his name out there. Most guys don't like to have their names um, told. Mike Day is, as I would count, Mike is probably one of my close friends. We met in um, 2009. Uh, we climbed Mount Rainier together in honor of Ryan Joe. Mike Day um, was on his last mission in April in 2007 outside of Fallujah, Iraq, with his SEAL team. He uh, kicked open the door and, a 12 by, and entered into a 12 by 12 foot room, and was shot 27 times, mm. 16 to the body and 11 to the body armor. The enemy did not think he was dead, so they threw a grenade at him and tried to kill him. Um, when the gunfight was over, Mike Day was the only one that walked out of the room alive. Um, you know. You know, he admits that, admittedly, he had some, you know, the physical wounds were, were not as difficult to overcome than the emotional wounds of war and, and serving as an ACL for 20-plus years. Well, I mean, you would think that that would be enough for Mike to take his pension and sort of, you know, go on. But he decided that he needed to do more, that he needed to be an epidemic of hope. Um, many veterans come back, and, and what I think complicates the suicide issue is a, a condition called traumatic brain injury, injury or TBI. Um, the, again, the VA's approach to that is a pharmacological one. And Mike decided that, that that's not the right one because what he does now is he works with full-time as a counselor and an advocate for wounded and disabled veterans um, with the SOCOM Care Coalition, the Special Operation Command Care Coalition. Um, well, Mike decided that in addition to his full-time day job, he needed to do something more. So after being wounded, you know, shot 27 times, having TBI from a grenade that blew up, you know, a couple feet away from him, he decided that he was going to raise money to send other veterans and non-veterans who have traumatic brain injuries to a facility called the Carrick Brain Treatment Center in Dallas, Texas. And he was going to raise money for them to go. So he is doing a triathlon, an Ironman triathlon tomorrow morning. 
he set out to raise $75,000, he's raised over $100,000. All of it goes, he doesn't take any of it. He's paid his own way to do this. So the reason why I tell you about Mike Day is because Mike Day refused to be a victim. He refuses to wallow in depression um, and allow that. He's fought through those things, he literally fought through them. And he will tell you personally that it was harder than overcoming the wounds, the physical wounds. And um, But Mike Day continues to be an epidemic of hope for me, for people who suffer with traumatic brain injury, depression, who struggle with suicide. And I know Mike's words has, have saved people's lives because they say, you know what? If this guy can do it, I can do it. Yeah. And um, he, that's what inspiration, inspiration you know, is about. That That is, you know, when you see somebody before you, you know, doing what you're making an excuse over, and they're doing it against all odds, you know, when they shouldn't be able to, um, when they shouldn't want to, when they shouldn't care to, and there they are doing it, not only to prove they can, but because it it's exciting to them and then they become an inspiration to you, we really have to look to our own lives and go, what's our excuse? Because quite honestly, we don't have any. Yeah, and, and he doesn't do that to make people feel bad about themselves. No. He does it to inspire them to say, you know what, I I humbly, you know, he says what I just needed to do. I, I felt that I could do more and I needed to do more because, you know, in, in Mike's own words, he says, there's a lot of people that are far worse off than me. And um, and frankly, he's right. There are. And there's people are far more worse off than me. So, you know, so Mike Day and, and many other, Noah Galloway and Ryan Job and many other people, to me, represent an epidemic of hope. And um, their stories, I think, need to be told and told in a way that inspire people, that show people that they can and that they become, you know, they further the epidemic of hope so that other people will, um, you know, want to do more and, and really, you know, be heroic to their family, to their friends, and to do something, you know, greater, you know, with, them, with their lives. And it doesn't, you know, when I say hero, you know, Ryan Joe to me, was a hero because, you know, he's a loving husband, a loyal friend, you know, a father. I, I guess I should probably tell what happened to him because... Um, it's important for people to know this. So um, after Ryan sort of overcame everything, he went in for some surgery. And um, it was uh, September 22nd, 2009, that he went in to, to repair some of the wounds that he had received in war. And um, it, was, it was supposed to be routine surgery, but I learned since that there's really nothing um, like routine surgery. There's no such thing. No. And... Um, he had two surgical procedures, both vascular procedures, to harvest a vein in his leg and insert in his um, in his eye area near his orbital uh, floor to restore some blood flow. He recovered from the first operation. Second operation was just to go in and, and tighten up some of the um, the, the, vas- the, va- the vascular area was a little bit loose. The vein was a little bit loose, or the insert was a little bit loose. So they um, closed some bleeders in there and sort of back up. And he recovered from that. Um, I talked to him the evening after his second operation. He was doing great. He was uh, looking forward to, to training. We're training for an Ironman triathlon. He was looking forward to training. I had his dog, Trey. Wanted to know how his dog was. Um, wanted to know how his wife was. And I said, everything's good. You know, I sort of had a normal conversation with him. I told him, hey, you know, don't don't sweat a man out 
I'll take care of business here. You take care of business up there. And uh, those are the last words I ever spoke to Ryan Job. What did actually uh, that would happen be, to him? What went wrong? Um, yeah, the hospital alleged that he, he aspirated on chewing tobacco. We later found out that that was a lie. Right. That Ryan Job was overdosed. He had uh, five times the amount of fentanyl in his system needed to kill him. Someone carelessly overdosed Ryan Job while he was in recovery. And um, he ended up dying of a medical overdose. How awful. And such a waste. But, you know, through you, he lives on. And his story, you know, becomes that inspiration for others. And, you know, thank you for honoring his life, for, you know, openly sharing what it's meant to you and what it's meant to other people and how it's led to other people who are also being an inspiration, not just the veterans, to everybody. Um, we are incredibly resilient people. And if we live in our faith and trust in our purpose and just live in our now, we will find that there's things that we can do that we never believed we could do before. Um, just got to believe. Got to believe you can. Got to believe it's okay. Got to believe that you're guided and, and you know, live for today because that's all we have. So thank you for honoring his story and that of Michael's and, and all the other people that you're helping there because one of the biggest cures that you can give anybody that is coming out of anything um, is the fact that there's somebody there that cares. And that's one of the key things that people need in recovery is to know that there's somebody there that cares and and that believes in them and believes in their possibilities because sometimes in that hopelessness, they can't see it for themselves. And when they see that hope in other people, they begin to see it in themselves. Yeah, well, I mean, Ryan Job, look, I, it was my honor to be his friend and to call him my, my friend. And... Um, you know, I'm, I'm humbled to, to know all the people that I know, and, and I count them as friends. And yeah, and I, I get it. I, I, um, but yeah, it was for me to, to write and to be able to, to share Ryan's story was really, for me, a, a great privilege and an honor to be able to tell his story in a way that um, I hope um, and really share our story of our friendship and what what he meant to me. I hope that people are changed by it. I mean, I've I've gotten a number of emails and, you know, and the like that, that people say, yeah, I've, I've been changed by this. And, and I hope that it continues to do that. That's my greatest hope that, um, you know, even if one person, one person, you know, is changed by it, 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 you know, Ryan's life, I think, you know, it was all worth it. It was all, you know, Ryan set it, something in motion that I think would be hard to, to stop now. Yeah. And um, it's sad that he's not here. I mean, it's, it's bittersweet in some ways, you know, like I wish Ryan was just here, you know what I mean? But um, he's not, and he's not coming back, and I just need to um, to honor him and be grateful for what he enlightened me, um, too. And, uh, you know, I write in the, the end of the book, I talk about the, the 10 lessons from Ryan Job's life that really were so profound, you know, about his sense of humor, about his humility, about his work ethic, about, you know, all the things that he, he taught me. And I revisit those every single day. And I'll tell you that they've been great lessons that, um, you know, that uh, I, I don't know if I would have gotten them any other way. Yeah. And, you know, now in turn, you know, you're you're honoring, you know, other people out there doing great work. And, and of course, it's changed your life considerably because now it's changed your direction yet again, hasn't it? 
yeah, I mean, with the, the, the most curious thing, this, I, I just decided that that was it. You know, I just needed to write this. And, you know, the company that I started had done great. We, but I decided I needed to, to do something more than that. So since I've written this, I, you know, I've been offered um, opportunities to continue to write. I have a new book deal with um, somebody who is much like Ryan Job. I mean, you know, just, um, just amazing stories of really, you know, of, epidemics of hope i mean that's the only way i could describe them mm-hmm. just incredible stories of and i just feel so honored to be able to you know to tell those stories in a way that inspire people and um so yeah i mean my life has you know totally changed i went from you know basically a suit and tie banker to feeling that i was just sort of pressing buttons and going through the motions and, and, and that's not to belittle the banking industry. It just that's what I felt like. I, I just yeah. felt like I I personally needed to do more. And I need I'm not one of those people that can just kind of do it on a part. I I I'm all in. Mm-hmm. I mean I I just go all in. I'm just not a I'm not a halfway type person. So I mean, uh, yeah, I went from that to you know becoming more or less a full time author. Um, you know, in the meantime, needing somebody to change my life completely. I mean, yeah. just just the way I thought about things. And, well, you know, my, I was on that. I was moving in that direction. But Ryan and Joe brought it there hyperspeed. I mean, it was just, um, but, yeah, I mean, it was just, you know, I guess one of the last things I want to share with you is I've always really liked the writings of um, of Thoreau. And, and um, one of Thoreau's um, close friends was Emerson. And, um you know, I was reading one time, Emerson had written and gave the eulogy at Thoreau's funeral. And I was reading the the eulogy, and it's just a beautiful eulogy. And at the end, Thoreau dies at a very young age. Um, and at the end, Emerson t- says something that literally can only be said about a few people that you'll ever meet in this world. And he says that, um, you know, that Thoreau had outlived the usefulness of this life and that um, he had accomplished so much at a young age that, you know, he just had no more need for this life. And that uh, wherever there is beauty, beauty and wherever there is, you know, intellect, like that's where Thoreau is. And I thought to myself that that's, that's really could be said about Ryan Job. Mm-hmm. That, that same eulogy could be, you know, given about, you know, Ryan's noble pursuit of life. And um, I thought that that was, you know, that, that that those few people in this world, Thoreau, Brian Job, you know, there's a handful of them that we, that we know that they could say that, that they pursued life with such passion, passion, such vigor, such um, humility, such grace, and such honor that that at the end you could say that they outlived the usefulness of this world and they just went to a better place. Yes, you know, a bright flame here for us to see and learn by and be inspired by. Um, but just not meant to be here for any length of time. And, you know, they were a gift to us, and and, and sometimes that those lives are cut short um, because they become a bigger gift in, in the shortness of their lives, really. Um, and it's just the way it goes. But, you know, there are so many people maybe out there like Ryan that nobody else has given the time to, to recognize and, and be inspired by. And you're giving voice to that, um, you know, have people look at people who are walking around with, you know, one arm less or, you know, blind or one leg less. And instead of turning your head, you know, look at them at, in, um, 
communicate, dialogue, invite. You know, it's so many people turn away. Don't turn away. They're not any less whole today. They've just got a few missing limbs, but they've gained so much more that if you bother to sit down and talk to them, you would gain from it as well. Yeah, I mean, I'll just tell you personally, like, the people that I know who are, you know, frankly missing limbs and uh, who are blind or otherwise burned, they they are, without question, that works for a United States senator, I've worked at the highest levels of government and banking. The people that I've met who have been altered in that way mm-hmm. um, are some of the most interesting, intelligent people I've ever met. And they have a profound um, way that they communicate things to you. Um, and it's just because they they ha- they speak a language that we will never know um, through their injuries or their you know their their disability or whatever it is, uh, and it's really not a disability. It, it's it's really altered them in a way that makes them so much more interesting, at least to me, of how they perceive the life and how they get along every day. And um, it is really remarkable when you when you meet you know somebody who is was either like that from birth or or altered in that way after birth. Um, they are to me, I'd count many of them as, as my close friends, and uh, they're to me probably the most interesting people that I've ever met. Just the way they, just just in the way they, you know, they they perceive things and do things. I mean, I'd say one of them, and one of my other friends is a guy named Lieutenant Jason Redman, Navy SEAL. When I first met him, he had no nose. He got shot to the face in Iraq by a machine gun. And um, his transformation and his story is so amazing to me. And what he does now is just so amazing to me that, you know, he's just really interesting to talk to and how he sees things. But, you know, he's a loving father. He's got three kids. He's, you know what I mean? He's, he's, you know, normal, except for the fact that, you know, now it doesn't look like he was shot to the face and has no nose. But, you know, but when I met him, he had sort of a piece of gauze where his nose used to be. And it's just... But they, those stories and the way they got that way and what they overcame, it seems to me much more interesting than than the people, most, look, not to be sort of disparaging to the masses, but most people tend to major in the minor yes. of life. Or the minor. I mean, you know, just like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, just, like, just majoring in the minor about literally this sort of, you know, complaining about irrelevant nothingness, you know what I mean? Like, and what I find most interesting about the people who have overcome serious illnesses or wounds or whatever it is, is that they have a profound story and a message for me. Mm-hmm. And maybe I'm just willing to receive it or listen to it, but I'm, I'm so intrigued by how they overcame, um, you know, their situation and how they do it daily. Um, that it just seems so much more interesting to me. And I, and I really, you know, I have a small circle of close friends. And um, someone said to me the other day that, you know, keep your circle small and your wine cold. And, <laughs> and um, I thought that was great advice. But the, um, uh, or you can insert beer for that if you'd like. But uh, <laughs> the, the um, but that, that was I would include those people as as the ones who have been altered in some way and have recovered and have come back from that, or, or are coming back from that, as really 
you know, people that I've learned the most from that I'm grateful to have as sort of my, I, I, I call them friends. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that I look to, and they look to me, you know, for counsel on different situations and advice. And, and I trust their judgment more because of their view shed. It's much longer and more profound than mine. So well, they you know, have it's, it's the gratitude, isn't it? I mean, yeah, exactly. And that's the point is, is that they're not sweating the small stuff because they've been no, through the big stuff. And now they're just grateful for the happy stuff. And, you know, and they've earned it. And that's the whole thing. It's when you simplify your life and you stop making a mountain out of every molehill um, and you simply embrace what you have right now and what what is possible and aim for that, you know, that gratitude of being able to. Um, that's where, you know, discovering stuff about yourself, discovering things that you could do that you never thought you could do, things that you can be, those that you inspire around you. Um, you know that this is their chapter they came back with some adjustments to them but in those adjustments they found their true heart and their true soul and their true purpose in life and they're grateful not only for that life but for their new perspective on life and they're truly living it completely yeah i mean it's just and you know i'm often people often ask me you know how and the only i and i i don't I don't um, pretend to know how you go on after being wounded like Ryan and others, and I, and I don't pretend to know how they feel. I, I'm just, I hope you can understand this. I'm, I'm just, you said this before, and I appreciate you saying this, is that, you know, I'm just there for them, right? Mm-hmm. I, I'm, you know, I, I had a deal, and I have a deal with everybody. Hey, you look, um, if you won't hold my past against me, I won't hold your past against you. So (laughs) we'll just roll like that. Like, I won't judge you. You don't judge me. We'll just just live right now. Like, what do you say? And so I think that works out. And and, um, people would ask me, how did Ryan? The only way I I can describe this is that, you know, when I, um, and this is really not a great sort of analogy, but I'll just give it anyway, because it's my own experience. And I can't pretend to know how it is with those guys or with Ryan is that, you know, I, I wanted to do this Ironman, my first one, and it's a, you know, it's a 2.4-mile swim and a 120-mile bike and then a marathon. And, you know, it's overwhelming when you think about that, right? Yes. 26-mile run after you ride your bike at 120 miles and you swim 2.4 miles and you got to do it in how long? 17 hours? And um, at the time, I didn't know how to swim, really. I'd never swim more than, let's say, I don't know, 50 yards. So I just signed up for one. And I figured that I just have to start. Yes. I, I literally just have to start. I don't know how to swim. So I just got in a pool. I started swimming. And, you know, after a while, I kind of figured it out. And, uh, and then I did, you know, 10 laps. And 10 laps turned into a mile and then two miles. And then, you know what I mean? I just, I, just I do. literally. Just do. <laughs> I just did it. Yes. I, just, I didn't worry about technique. I didn't worry about, I mean, Literally, I remember, I mean, this is one of the, the kind of a, one of the moments like that I remember the most about training for an Ironman is that I had a coach or, or a swim coach or a swim instructor, however you want to call it. But I, um, I asked him one day, you know, and I, I'm, I'm really not, wasn't a great swimmer, you know, and I asked him one day after, you know, an hour in the pool of really just sort of 
you know, splashing water around and not going very far or very fast. I asked him, you know, how am I doing? And there was this pregnant pause. <laughs> and um, l- like one of those pauses where you don't think you heard the question. Yep. And um, so I was just about to ask him again, and he turned to me and said, you know, no one tries harder than a grounding man. And right then I, I got it. He was trying to say to me, look, swimming is about, you know, distance per stroke, not, you know, kicking as hard as you can, right? Because you could kick as hard as you can, move your arms as hard as you can, and you're never going to get anywhere. So at that point, I kind of got it. And I I count that person as sort of, he didn't give me any, you know, he didn't tell me, put your arm in the water like that. There was no sort of instruction. It was just a philosophy that he imparted on me that was so... I mean, after that, I got it. I was like, yeah, you know, he's right. I am. And those people, I think, in the process, once you start, once you just get after it, once you just, those people come in and they make the, you know what I mean? They are the right people at the right time. Yes. So for anybody who's struggling out there who doesn't know how, look, just go and do and just keep doing until it's, you know, done. And that's it. And you'll find your guiders along the way. Yeah, I mean, there's no way to finesse something, yeah. if you know what I mean. You just got to kind of muscle through it. Don't and wait for everything brutal. to be in perfect order before you do it. Just go and do yeah, it, the yeah. order will come. Yeah, exactly. There is no perfect time. There is no perfect, you know, it'll never be like that. That's unrealistic. Just go, like, uh-huh. just Make it don't perfect. Wait. Don't wait for perfection. Yeah, Make it like, perfect. Just, just, yeah. Like, you're not going to, you know, I hear, I hear this one, you know, younger people, um, say, well, I'm going to find myself. You're not going to find yourself. You got to go create it. Go ahead, just go, just do. You're not going to find anything over there that's not over here. Just go, yeah. you know, and just do. You have to. It's do. in the You're living. You're not going to find anything. Yeah, you it's know? in the living. It's in the partaking and participating in your own life. And I think this is where you know you look at Ryan and you look at Michael and look at these other people. They're participating in their own lives. They're not sitting back and waiting life to happen to them. They're out there participating. And they're participating in joy and in gratitude and living in the moment. And that in itself is a wonderful lesson to learn. So can you please now tell us how people can buy the book and your site? Also how uh, Camp Patriot, how people can um, support or even know more about that. Yeah, Camp Patriot is a great organization. They're they're, uh, based in Libby, Montana. They've just uh, acquired... 100-acre ranch will become the new home of Camp Patriot. Um, it's in the Yak River Valley, which is the north. It's just seven miles south of British Columbia, Canada. So, But um, to support Camp Patriot, to learn more, you can go to camppatriot.org. Um, you can donate through there as well. It's a great organization. There's images, stories, so you can go there. To, to acquire or to get the book A Warrior's Faith or see more photographs of Brian Joe, you can go to awarriorsfaith.com. It's available at all booksellers now, including Costco. Um, it's number one, I think, and still in new releases on Amazon. Love doing it. really well, and I really appreciate uh, mm-hmm. all the support. But uh, you can go to Amazon.com and get it. And, um, you know, I just want to say to all the veterans who are maybe listening out there that on behalf of myself and my family, I'm, I'm very, very grateful for all your service and um, dedication. Thank you very much. And, you know, also to all those people out there in any parts of the world, because it's not just the 
you know, the veterans, it's, you know, it is the, the doctors and the paramedics and the, the people are there to help pick up those pieces and help heal on this side. Uh, there are a lot of heroes in this equation and they seem to get brushed under the carpet and it's about time we start acknowledging them and just being grateful for the work that they do and the help that they, they give because it's helped rebuilding lives. And so don't turn your head away from somebody that needs help. Ask, guide, listen, care because sometimes that's all they need to get back on track. Thank you so much for being with us today. Um, it, it, a beautiful story, and, you know, the way that you've honoured him and honour all of them, um, not just a soldier, you know, coming back broken and uh, being tossed under the carpet, you know, just people coming back changed and understanding that life is now and get out and live it, and truly a wonderful thing to leave us all. Get out and live in the now and believe um, have faith so that's wonderful so thank you so much Robert yeah I'm grateful to have, for having me thank you very much and thank you for and do let us know when the next book is because I'd love to have you back to find out more about that that'd be great I will thank you Okay, folks, so, you know, like while you're busy looking at yourself and thinking, why me? Um, start looking around at other people and going, you know, it's time for me to invest in myself. It's time for me to participate in my own life. It's time for me to take some action and find some faith and belief and just do. Because if others can do it, no matter their obstacles, so can you. So it starts off with being kind to yourself. Until next time. <laughs>